After six months living in a virtual world, it is increasingly clear that there's an Aussie greeting that is perfect for virtual events like this, where some people are watching early in the morning, others late in the evening, and that is a simple good day. My name is Gordon Flake. I'm the CEO of the Perth US Asia Center, and I'm honored to welcome you to the third in the series of monthly politics discussions between myself and the CEO of the United States Studies Center at the University of Sydney, uh, Professor Simon Jackman. As the Perth US Asia Center at the University of Western Australia is the host this month, uh, allow me to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet, even if it is only virtually, the Wajak people of the Noongar Nation. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present, and emergent. Now, after three months of these conversations between Simon and myself, uh, several things are increasingly clear. Number one, there's deep interest in our respective communities on the US election, now just 90 days out. I think we have well over 200 people uh, registered for this webinar today, uh, including every state in Australia, and I think well over 10 countries internationally. Number two, it's clear that our um, attempt to summarize a month is not gonna happen. Uh, I think we could spend the entire short hour, we, hour we've allocated for ourselves discussing the events of the last day, let alone the last month. Uh, and number three, our conversations benefit tremendously by having guests join us for, for the conversation. Um, just as the, was the case last month when we had uh, USSC senior fellow and former Republican Congressman Mia Love. Today, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Evelyn Farkas, a friend of mine from my decades in Washington, D.C., who herself has over three decades of experience in Washington in the executive, the legislative branch, as well as in the private sector and international organizations. Uh, I think many of you will already know Evelyn. Uh, she served from 2012 to 2015 as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Commercial Arms Control from 2010 to 2012. She was senior advisor to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe and special advisor to the Secretary of Defense for the NATO summit. Uh, she's also had great experience in, in the think tank and academic community from 2001 to 2008. Uh, she served as a professional staff member of the Senate Armed Services Committee responsible for the Asia Pacific, the Western Hemisphere. I, for my long years working in North Korea, familiar with her from her trips to holiday destinations like Pyongyang. Um, but she's brought a tremendous level of, of foreign policy and security expertise to the community in Washington, D.C., and we're very fortunate to have her here with us today. On a special note, in addition to everything I've just said before, Evelyn is one of those rare individuals who doesn't just analyze the situation, but she's actually a, a classic woman in the arena. In addition to serving in government up until just last week, uh, she was a candidate for Congress in the 17th District of New York. Uh, and we appreciate her efforts to kind of actually participate directly in civic life. That means that she's bringing with her perspective, not only from government, but from work on the Hill uh, and as a candidate itself. So Evelyn, thank you for taking time to join us today. We greatly appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me, Gordon. I had to have some coffee because, you know, it's, it's evening time here in the U.S. We'll still give you an Aussie good day <laughs> even at 11 o'clock at night in D.C. And Simon, thank you again for joining in. And, and, uh, for, for doing this joint series with us at the Perth U.S. Asia Center. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, always a pleasure, Gordon, and great for our two centers to be working together on something as important this year. Now, Evelyn, let me start off our conversation because we want to maximize the time as much as we can. Uh, as I in introduced you, you, you've actually got a lot of different perspectives looking at politics from, from actually having worked in government, 
having been on Capitol Hill and having been a candidate yourself, we're now just less than 90 days out for the election. I wonder if you might just give us your, your big picture overview of the state of the race. Yeah, I mean, Gordon, it's really difficult because now we're, we're experiencing this politics during pandemic, which is something I experienced, as you mentioned, um, up close and personal, and we're seeing it unfold and affect this campaign. Um, specifically, the Democratic Party has decided not to go knocking on doors, while the Republican Party apparently is going to knock on doors for President Trump. I don't know how that's going to work out. But the big picture is that right now, uh, or, or I should say in June, um, and July, uh, President, uh, Vice President Biden um, gained over President Trump in the polls. However, the latest analysis I saw today from CNN, it was very interesting, um, pointed out that the, the loss in points that, that Trump experienced vis-a-vis -vis Biden has slowed. So I don't know what this means. And I think the biggest lesson for all of us is it's August. <laughs> and there's still way too much time between now and November. So as somebody who's a Democrat and wants Vice President Biden very much, I mean, for me, it's almost existential because I'm also the child of Hungarian immigrants who fled communist Hungary, and I do not want to live in a fascist state. Um, it, is, it is imperative that Vice President Biden win and that he continue to gain in popularity because the other issue we have is that we don't want a close election. We can get into that later, I'm sure. Um, so I am cautiously optimistic. You know, Vice President Biden's doing better but I would like for him to do even better because I'm still worried about the time between now and November. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we had a Republican guest last month and the one area of consensus, I think from, from serious observers of US politics is, is real concern about the dangers of a close election, just given how deeply divided the country is right now. Simon, um, there are few institutions in the world and certainly none in Australia that get as much attention uh, around election time as does the United States Study Center. Uh, you yourself have focused intensely in your professional career on polls and polling, uh, building them yourselves. Um, uh, I wonder if you would give us your, your state of the race assessment uh, where we stand right now. Yeah, thanks, Gordon. And, and um, you are the best advertising we have. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for that, those kind words. Um, look, I share Evelyn's assessment about the state of the polls. It's, it's very curious. Um, um, Biden may well have peaked about six weeks ago. Um, if you look at the poll tracking, uh, averaging over all the polls, and that's kind of part of the methodology that I help pioneer, it's, it's quite standard now. Don't look at just one poll, use a model to combine them all and smooth them over time. And if you do that, you see that that average of the polls had Biden's lead at about nine and a half points nationally about six weeks ago, and now it's down to about eight. Um, and that, that's, that's not insignificant. Um, once you average that much polling information, a one and a half point movement is significant. Uh, that's quote unquote real. Um, and I think if you're a Democrat, as Evelyn was just saying, um, you are reminded by, of 2016, where Hillary Clinton's impressive lead in national polls did not translate into a win in the, in the electoral college. Moreover, Swing state polling in 2016 revealed itself to be quite unreliable. Um, we at the US Study Center are, are doing a very deep dive on that with more to say about that the next week or two, including a webinar 
with some with some real poll geeks from from Washington uh, coming up in, on August seventeen, but but I think how how big a lead does Biden need in order for be it a Democrat or be it an, an analyst to feel confident about the result? I would tell you that at probably nationally at least five is about the magic number, and that's why that trajectory, Gordon, one and a half points coming off. Trump, uh, Biden's lead over the last five or six weeks or so, given, as Evelyn just pointed out, it's still only August. Where will, if that trend, that slow trend back to Trump um, continues, where will that put the race uh, come November? Particularly now, this is the other the last thing I'll say on this, Gordon, as, as, the, as the advertising spend really starts to ramp up now. We're not quite there uh, past Labor Day weekend yet in the United States. But in that home stretch, that last 60 days or so, look out for just a massive ad spend. Biden already announced he's going to drop at least $250 million, the largest ad buy in politics ever announced. Um, and, and there'll be plenty more where that came from, from the Trump side. So a lot of room to go yet. Um, the, that the last 45 days of polling or so sort of su suggests uh, the race will not be eight points or nine points come November. The question is, is it outside what I think is that working margin of error that you would want if you're a Democrat in order to feel confident? And like I said, I think that's about five points. I'm wondering how much of this is just um, one's bitten twice shy. And that if you're a, 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 a political analyst or even a participant, <laughs> you're really wary about making any predictions now having been burned in 2016 and also uh, we're wary uh, of, of demotivating the troops, right? I think there needs to be this feeling, uh, at least on the Democratic side, uh, that you can't give up now is too early. Um, one of the questions I would ask on that front, I'll start with you, Simon, and then get Evelyn chime in as well, sure. is you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, um, probably the most famous, I don't know whether he's the best or not, you can chime in on that, but Nate Silver has his 538. And mm -hmm. if you look mm -hmm. at both the the favorability versus unfavorability rating for mm -hmm. the president, as well as the Biden versus Trump matchup. The mm -hmm. numbers have been, you're right, with you know, a little bit of fluctuation, remarkably parallel. You, you see for the last year, you know, two lines which never cross and oh. never seem you know, like they're even converging in any way, shape, or form. The, so the stability seems to be the defining factor there. How would you interpret? Yeah, you're, you, you are onto something there, Gordon. Um, so Trump, and I'll be very brief, so I want Evelyn to weigh in on this. Um, two things about Trump's numbers. Um, uh, he has the most stable presidential approval ratings that we've ever seen in the history of measuring presidential approval that goes all the way back to FDR. People were baked in <laughs> how they felt about Trump before he was sworn in. And crises come and scandals come and the impeachment and all of that. Uh, COVID has, you know, and all that. Very, very little moves Trump numbers uh, on approval. And, and, but, and that does, I think, Gordon, where you're going is to ask what is the political electoral consequence of that? And I think I go back to some comments we had with the Democratic consultant webinar we did last week, Anna Greenberg, old former student of mine, um, great friend of the US Study Center. She said, Democrats have been riled up about Trump since he was elected. And look at the midterms and look at the, look at the women's march very early in his presidency. Look at the candidates that were mobilized to run in 18. Um, um, long before we got to COVID, um, the, the Democratic base is, is riled up, but so too is the Republican base. And I think 
um, this election is you're seeing that wave of turnout that the Dems brought out in 18 um, and some disaffected Republicans, they're, they're, the, they're what's new in the equation relative to the 16. And so just to round it out, the question is, are the polls picking up those changes in the electorate correctly? Because they certainly didn't, Gordon, 12 to 16, right? That's where the polls went wrong. We did a great job in 12. We messed up, we collectively, the polling industry and analysts of polls did not see the change in the electorate 12 to 16. The question is, has 18 taught the polling industry enough such that you, me, Evelyn, all of us can feel reasonably confident in, the, in these poll leads that we're seeing now for Biden and not feel as though we're going to get our whatever handed to us um, as it was, as we did in, in 2016? Well, Simon, you're, you're absolutely correct. Uh, and we discussed this last month, uh, that the, the approval ratings for the president have been remarkably stable and historically stable. But the flip side is also true that he is net underwater and the disapproval That's ratings true. have also been remarkably stable. Yeah, he, he's got one of the lowest approval ratings that we've ever seen for a president chasing re-election. And ordinarily, you'd say, well, that would lead us to predict he can't be re-elected. But comma. I mean, I think the, the really important component of this, and again, I confess I may be a little bit influenced by my recent election. You know, we expected in my election that 40 to 60,000 people would turn out. It was almost 80,000. Yeah. Why? Because of Black Lives Matter, which is also why I lost and why the other moderates in my race lost and a progressive black gay man won. And so we don't know what's going to happen kind of out there in the political environment that could potentially motivate more people suddenly to, to register or to turn out. And I really think that this is the thing that's so frustrating as an American to look at, you know, we have the worst um, setup when it comes to, to elections and voting. And we, we pretty much disincentivize, even before you get to voter suppression, Americans from voting. We need to do something about that across the board. In my election, we talked about everything we could do, starting from you know, registering people when they graduate from high school um, to you know, a national holiday, short of what you guys do, which is, as I understand it, require people to vote. Now, um, we really need to do something, though, in America to get the turnout out. But it is possible, again, going back to what you said before, Gordon, about the anger and, and then also the excitement about getting women into the race, about getting people of color into politics, um, that maybe that will propel greater turnout this time. Because the, the problem that many of us see is that the, these races are too narrow. And this is now even more acute in the case of Trump, because there's not just the question of who's going to win but will Trump accept the outcome? And if there's a close, if, if, if it looks close, he's less likely to accept it. And that's a whole nother issue. And if I could say one other quick thing on the why 40% you know, don't budge and they just love Trump. Again, I think it's because we've never had a president who's really been a fascist. I mean, in terms of cultivating this personality cult, people are not supporting him because of his policies is my belief. They're supporting him because of this kind of type of personality they want to support. And 
and I'll leave it at that. Simon can analyze it if you'd like. Uh, and care forty percent is really low. I, this, I, I, Evelyn, I get asked this all the time. How is it that forty percent of Americans can approve of Trump? You know, a lot of Australians ask that question. You've got to remind them. Historically speaking, for a president to be locked pretty much at say thirty-eight to forty-one in their approval ratings for like three and a half years, that's that's bad. That is a very low approval rating. And, and ordinarily, the, the rule is you'd like your approval rating to be north of 50 for your re-election, you know. And, and so, yes, it sounds like a lot on the one hand, but in relative terms, he, he's got a low approval rating. It's sort of a little bit of a floor effect. If every Republican said reflexively they approve of the job he's doing, and every soft Republican who doesn't openly describe themselves as a Republican, did, you'd, get, you'd get to 35, you know. And so 40... Is, is is low and pretty much is, is a little bit above a rusted on type numbers is the way I sort of describe it to Australians. Although Simon, if I might chime in here, the sure. thing that's really fascinating for me about that is that if you look at where Trump's approval rating sat on January 1st of this year, and you look at where it is now, it's almost identical. It goes, yep. you know, some, some days it's slightly above, some days it's slightly below, but it's almost exactly where it was January 1. And in the intervening six, seven months now, You've had a global pandemic that's killed 150,000 plus Americans. You've had the, the highest unemployment rate since the Great Depression, the collapse of the economy, complete civil unrest. And yet somehow that hasn't changed that base. And so that's, that's a remarkable story, which I'm afraid we're not going to get into too much detail at the time. Because I want to move on to the next thing. And if there's one thing out there that, that seems to have the potential to, to shake things up that we don't know yet, that's the question of the vice presidential pick. Uh, many people assumed uh, that the, the choice would be made and announced publicly this week. It now looks like it's going to be next week. But uh, looking at the fact that the, the president and the vice president's side of the ticket seems to be set, uh, we know pretty much what their campaign strategy is and their messaging is. Uh, the, the one thing that might be a little bit different between now and the election is who the uh, the candidate on the Democratic side, former Vice President Joe Biden, picks as his vice presidential candidate. He has early on indicated that he was going to pick a woman. Uh, by all accounts right now, it, it seems extremely likely that he's going to pick a woman of color. And that, that does seem to be um, the, the, the focus right now of attention in the last several weeks. But why don't we start with you, Evelyn? I think you probably have met or worked with or know some of the other candidates directly. Uh, would you kind of give us your assessment of the the state of the race, if there is such a thing, for vice presidential candidate on the Democratic side of the ticket. Yeah, I mean, I will tell you, Gordon, I am very skeptical of all of the media coverage. Um, I think it's very hard to tell exactly who the vice president is really seriously considering. Um, there's no, I don't really think there's anything in it for him in terms of tipping his hand. I mean, I understand people think he might be trial ballooning or the notes about Kamala are revealing something. Um, Kamala Harris, that is former presidential candidate, Senator um, from California. Um, there are, I will say, first of all, that all of the candidates that have been mentioned are all outstanding. Um, women of color, white women, um, Asian American, um, in the case of Tammy Duckworth, um, really experienced, um, competent, um, and, and so I would be excited to see any of them. I don't know that it's going to be a woman of color only because I, 
the only reason I question it is because James Clyburn, Congressman Clyburn, who basically delivered the nomination to Vice President Biden by helping him get the black vote in South Carolina, um, he said repeatedly, it doesn't have to be a woman of color. Um, so I think that ultimately what the leadership, you know, the establishment and, and, and um, Congressman Clyburn is very much of the establishment. What they want is someone who will deliver <laughs> the, the goods, you know, the White House. So they're, a, although a woman of color would be great, I think for most Democrats, they just want to make sure that whoever it is can step into the job and deliver something to help Vice President Biden win. So if you look at Kamala Harris, yeah, she could deliver California, but we have California already. If you look at Val um, uh, Demings, a representative in uh, Florida, now you're talking woman of color could deliver Florida. Um, so that's something that's important. Um, uh, some of the other ones, though, you know, all of a sudden, um, Gretchen um, Whitmer, the uh, governor of Michigan, popped up today in the media um, because she she introduced a new, I guess, executive order, basically saying that um, there was a it was a I forget now the exact terminology, but basically there was a state of emergency when it came to um, healthcare and race in her state in particular. And so that was seen as maybe a sign that she's getting ready to leap onto the larger stage or she's trying to position herself. Susan Rice, I worked with Susan Rice. She's very competent. Um, she knows how the government works. And of course, um, she's very close to Vice President Biden. So she's been talked about a lot as well. Ultimately, I do think that he will have to be comfortable with whoever the pick is. Um, so the Kamala Harris question about whether he's forgiven her is important. Um, it will be somebody that he has to trust to help him um, to be able to take over should he um, decide to re you know, resign early or, or serve out his term and then turn over to somebody to run. Um, but he will not want somebody who is in there running for president from day one. Simon, if I can turn to you on this, I know you're friends with uh, Steve Schmidt. Um, it, those of you who don't know Steve Schmidt, he was a former advisor or a campaign manager actually during the McCain campaign. And if you're interested in, in political dramas, uh, there was a wonderful HBO uh, drama, there was a movie put together called Game Change uh, surrounding the choice of Sarah Palin as a vice presidential candidate. Um, and and I, I'll forever be struck by Woody Harrelson's face at the very end of the movie. He's playing Steve Schmidt. You know, kind of the look in his eyes and goes, oh my, what have we done? <laughs> kind of thing. So, so uh, Simon, can you kind of chime in your assessment of the, the different possibilities and more importantly, uh, whether or not you think it matters at this point, in, in, in a vice presidential candidate choice at this point in the race? Gordon, I was listening to Evelyn's fantastic analysis then and thinking, what could I possibly add to that? I, I look, um, what's the old saying about campaigns? Um, Winning's not the most important thing, it's the only thing. Um, and, and I think that's the prism you've got to look at this pick. I, and, and at last though, that leads you in two potentially different directions. The argument about mobilization, really firing up the democratic base through by nominating um, a, a woman of, of color, it, it takes you in that direction, the mobilization argument. The, Go win the median voter in Michigan, Pennsylvania, um, um, Wisconsin, takes you perhaps in a different direction. Um, and, um, you know, just putting my 
political scientist, analyst hat on, that's the direction I go in. <laughs> um, 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 pick a candidate, like Biden himself, by the way, represents that sort of a candidate. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I would be focused, number one, on that. Um, who will be a good governing partner for you doesn't matter uh, if you don't win. Um, so go win the damned election and, and what's the pick that helps you do that is what I'd say. I tend to think moreover that argument carries more weight and relevance in the current circumstances because I think Trump is doing just a great job himself of mobilizing the democratic base, young people, people of color, um, everything that's happening in American society over the last four years, I think has got people off the couch on the democratic side of the ledger. You don't need a VP he picked necessarily, in my view at least, to fire up the base. Um, and so I keep, does it necessarily have to be, this pick need to be a woman of color? It may be, right? But not, I don't see, I'm afraid, not a, a dynamite electorally relevant argument to do that. Um, and so I keep coming back to, gee, I wonder how Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, is faring through the vetting process. And very interested to hear Evelyn's remarks about that. Um, Michigan, you win Michigan, um, um, you're probably also going to bring a, another state or two uh, like that over the line. And remember, those were the states, the three upper Midwestern states, uh, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, the whole thing turned on that last cycle. They will be pivotal one way or another this cycle. And so I, I keep coming back to, you know, what, what's going to win you those states in an environment where at least from this distance, and maybe Evelyn's got a contrary view, but where I think the mobilization task has kind of taken care of itself due to just the hostility Democrats and many people in the middle of the political spectrum have to the possibility of a, of a second Trump term. Maybe, but I'm, but I'm also, again, as I said, really concerned about getting more Americans, more people to vote, period. And so that, but I don't know whether the vice presidential pick will, will do it or not. Well, look, I was going to be cheeky and kind of push you both to make your predictions, knowing full well that, you know, we'll know the answer by the time this is, is shared kind of beyond the live audience right now. But since I'm on the same, same call and I have no desire to, to pick something where I have no confidence and I'll, I'll spare you from that. What I do want to turn to though, is what has been um, largely the narrative of the last three and a half years since the last election. And that is the, the US system. Uh, Evelyn, you started in your open remarks uh, talking about some of the fundamental flaws in the way the United States goes about voting. Uh, right now, there's heavy focus. The president himself suggested that we might have to delay the election. There's an attack on mail-in voting, unless it's in a Republican state. Uh, it, then absentee ballots, which are done by the mail, are okay, but they're not. Um, so much of the last three and a half years were focused on, on, on foreign interference in the elections, and yet uh, we don't seem to have fundamentally changed where we were at this time in 2016. So I'm wondering, again, you've had some direct experience with this as well. Uh, could you kind of address the integrity of the American election system and, and those various uh, avenues into that discussion? We'll start with you, Evelyn, and we'll go to Simon. No, I mean, look, remember that back in 2016, during that election, when the Russians interfered, 
their objective was to make Americans question the integrity of our elections and of our democracy writ large, but, but certainly specifically our elections, and also to help Donald Trump because they thought he would be more helpful to Russia. Donald Trump has been so helpful to Russia because he's continued to erode confidence among Americans in our democracy and in our elections. He's done this a myriad of ways, obviously through his rhetoric, which is constantly questioning the integrity of our elections, but also through his, for lack of a better word, which is too loaded, I was going to say henchmen, but through his allies, <laughs> politically, like Mitch McConnell, who have stalled and uh, stalled funding for increasing ele election security. In addition to that, his own people in the White House, who he has basically directed to dismantle the office of the cyber czar, which was also another place where you could have increased oversight over election security. He's done everything to erode the federal government's um, work and funding to help states bolster their election security. And this is just like protecting America against a pandemic. You cannot do it state by state. I mean, I understand why we devolve those, those responsibilities down to the states, and there, there are good arguments to be made, but not when you're being attacked, when you know you're being attacked by, by at least one foreign entity, one foreign government, right? We know that, it's documented. I'm sure the Chinese and others, our intelligence agencies have talked a little bit about that as well. But we know we're being attacked, so the federal government should be helping the states with funding, with giving them also criteria about what election systems are safe, which ones aren't. You should always have paper ballots, et cetera. So we know that we have a problem on our hands. And I'm even more alarmed now because although I have security clearances, I have no need to know. So I have not been briefed like Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut, but Senator Blumenthal of Connecticut was recently briefed on foreign interference in our elections and tweeted out that he's very alarmed that our, our administration, that our government is not alerting the American people, is not telling us actually what these actors are doing right now. And that, of course, is a segue to the fact that my election also was interfered with. I was a target of Russian interference, relatively mild, um, but nevertheless, there was interference in a US um, state congressional race. So I think we have a huge problem on our hands, and we don't even know publicly the full extent of it. Uh, Evelyn, I saw a New York Times article with uh, just the day before yesterday uh, referencing, uh, you know, a State Department report on, on, you know, the fact that there is this election going on without going down to the specifics. Your, your case was, was quoted as well. Uh, and, and yet there does seem to be a disconnect between our intelligence communities, our diplomatic communities recognizing the problem, uh, and where the rubber meets the road in terms of the election infrastructure, uh, the willingness of, of the government to respond to that. And I guess that probably echoes uh, the problems we had three and a half years ago as well. Yeah, and it doesn't mean, Gordon, that you know there wouldn't still be a problem if the intelligence agencies put out a report, because we saw in 2016, the intelligence community put out a report and it, 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 there were many Americans, and of course, including Republicans and President Trump himself, who dismissed those reports and managed to get sufficient numbers of people to ignore them. So, you know, having the information out there isn't the answer, but it's, but it's certainly a first part of the problem. And then, obviously, then you need funding, you need political will, you need Americans demanding election security. Simon, uh, given your focus on the, on the machinery of elections, could you kind of chime in on this as well? Oh, Gordon, um, it's heartbreaking. 
you know, I'm a dual citizen. Um, I naturalized over the long time I spent in the US and, and it's both professionally, scholarly, but, but personally, you know, I've never been more fearful for the prospects of a free and fair election in the United States as I am this cycle. And 2016 should have been an existential wake up call for all the talk of, you know, the commitment to the values of democracy, where has been the follow through uh, from, from Washington? Um, let me also just throw on the table, you know, for Australians, you need to understand there is no one US electoral administration system. There's about 3000. It is literally a county by county operation with directives from the states, but so much of the actual machinery is, at, is county by county. Um, what sort of voting machine you might have, if you have a machine, do you have optical scan, is it paper, um, where the precincts will be. States allocate funding uh, to the counties to do that, but it is this hodgepodge and patchwork of systems that is in some places quite professional, and, and in other parts of the United States, you know, one notch above partisan hackery or, or a mix of that and, and just well-meaning but, but, but poorly resourced um, folks trying to, to make do. Um, after 2000, um, there was um, HAVA, the Help America Vote Act and the Election Assistance Commission. Washington from time to time stands up these things. But the sad truth is, Going right back to the Voting Rights Act, um, Washington has to be dragged kicking and screaming to start to get down and into the states where ultimate, and counties where ultimately responsibility for election administration vests. Um, um, and that was true with Harvard. Um, I, I met um, the woman who was the leader of the um, Election Assistance Commission and Congress gave her some money to go up and do her thing. And, and they wanted to tick the, it was purely symbolic, uh, check the box. And this is to do with the hanging chads and all of that drama that we saw um, uh, after, after the Florida um, controversy in Bush v. Gore in 2000. But the truth is a lot of incumbent members of Congress don't mind a quiet election, thanks very much, where they know the rules of the road and how, how to get themselves reelected. That suits them very well, thanks very much. And the local party there, um, it, it's, 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 a, it's a great and, but sad reflection on, on, on American politics that you know, American kids are taught to believe they live in the greatest democracy in the world. But the sad fact of the matter is when it comes to election administration, it, it just, America does not live up to the promise and the story it tells about itself. Um, Australia, I think we can, we can point to a few things. Um, legally, um, elections, elections to the federal parliament, um, a lot of responsibility for that vests with the federal government. And, and we've created an institution here, the Australian Electoral Commission, that covers everything from the financing of elections through to the actual on the day ground machinery of, of elections. There are national standards, they are quite, they're extremely professional. And moreover, at least over my lifetime, there has been a reasonable consensus um, not to play partisan games um, with it. And, and, and that's been also increasingly true at the state level in Australia, I'd say over the last 30, 40 years. 
But it is just not the case in the United States. Uh, control of elections remains in state and local hands is often a partisan operation. Um, and, and those are two just big, big structural factors, Gordon, that put the US really behind the eight ball. And it leaves really the courts or citizen initiative as really, I think, the, the two most effective levers for bringing about meaningful uh, reform and, and restoring, or in some cases, creating de novo integrity in, in, in the electoral processes of, of what we would hope and, and, and what ought to be the, the, the greatest and most powerful democracy on the planet. I want to keep this particular focus going just for a moment. We have one of the live viewers' questions has popped up from the studiosity, it's called the Studiosity Team, and they mentioned, Simon, your comment that America does not live up to its promise is quite striking. And the question for them is really to you, Evelyn, uh, is are Americans today open enough to hear that critique in a nonpartisan way? Or is criticism of the election system and in the U.S. system not living in promise almost certain to be seen in a partisan manner in the U.S. today? Um, that's a really good question. I'm not sure that I know on, on election systems. So whether, whether Republicans um, or moderates, or let's just say Republicans, would be equally apt to, to criticize the election machinery. Mm. What I will say is that um, Americans across the board criticize our Congress, for example, right now, unable to come to an agreement on a uh, a package to provide assistance to Americans to continue to make it through this um, pandemic and economic um, depression, so, or recession. Um, so I, I think that there is agreement that our system is broken. I don't know whether the, the agreement, I think probably focuses more on the people who are running the system than the system itself. Um, you know, I mean, I, don't, I still don't think Americans take kindly to, you know, if the Australians were to come over with a commission and say, here's where you need to change your constitution. You don't like that because we're used to telling other countries how to do it. Um, so I don't think that would go over very well. But certainly the parties themselves are criticized by equally, I would say, by Republicans and Democrats and moderates and the, the Congress writ large. But it does sound like from your earlier comments that in the current environment, if we're just talking about election security, uh, you know, yeah. there is resistance on the part of one party to improving these things right now because they've benefited from the current situation. Hey, let me, let me bring out another online comment right now from Sue Boyd. Sue is one of our story diplomats, former Australian ambassador to Vietnam, et cetera. Uh, and uh, Sue, particularly for you, Evelyn, would like to hear a little bit more about the challenge of getting voters actually out to cast their votes. Um, if, if we look back at 2016, I'm commenting now right here, one of the most striking things that, that impacted that outcome was the fact that the people who turned out for you know, President Obama in 2012 and 2008 didn't turn out in 2016. Uh, so voter turnout seems to be the game. Uh, Simon earlier mentioned we had a massive turnout in the midterms in 2018. Uh, but I don't know that the Australian viewers watching this today fully understand the challenges of, you know, getting out the vote. And my guess is that you faced the problem in your own primary election, uh, dealing that in a pandemic environment, dealing it in the current political environment. So could you talk a little bit about that fundamental challenge? 
Yeah, I mean, getting Americans to vote is frustratingly difficult because we don't have a national holiday. So people generally have to do it on a Tuesday before they go to work or after work. Um, if you're a single parent um, and you have to pick your children up from school or drop them off, you know, you better hope the line is really short because most of our states still are conducting elections, or I should say up until now have been conducting elections, you know, in-person elections. Um, some states have over time or over more recent years adopted early elections. So you can vote, you know, not on election day, but in person earlier uh, at certain polling locations, not as many as you would have obviously on election day. And then mail-in. Um, we always like to say that California, or well, we, I guess we Democrats like to say that California is in the lead. And even as a New Yorker, I have to admit that in many cases where historically New York was in the lead, but now California on, on mail-in voting, um, they've been doing it for years. They understand how it works and they have a system for it. Um, we had such a problem in New York with all of our congressional races. Uh, you know, I meant, you mentioned, I mentioned that my race was only officially finalized last week, but it was only two days ago that another one in New York City was finalized. Um, where Carolyn Maloney was the winner, but it was very narrow. Um, that is because of the, the, the mail-in ballots and the fact that we don't have the infrastructure and the organization in New York to be able to do that um, quickly and efficiently. So the states are also having to make that pivot. Um, President Trump is, I mean, he's, again, as you mentioned earlier, muddying the waters on this. But why is turnout all so hard? Um, because of the electoral college and the popular vote, the discrepancy between the two. And so if you go and you turn out in New York, for example, um, it may not make a difference because it's really whether the electoral college votes from Wisconsin are going to get the president, you know, the, 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 the camp, the, your guy or gal over the line. And so there's, there's problems with the system and the, the lack of motivation sometimes to people in certain states to turn out. Um, uh, let me see, there are a few other things. Well, I, I don't want to leave out the Russian intervention because you mentioned oh. 2016. The Russians actually suppressed the African-American vote for Hillary through Facebook. Um, they basically created uh, all of these fake accounts and then bombarded African-Americans with messages saying Hillary Clinton was not going to help them, so they might as well stay home. I think they also confused where you could vote and the usual voter suppression tactics that have been used historically, especially against black Americans. But that, that was something that was actually done that suppressed the vote for Hillary Clinton. Um, yeah, I'll leave I have to say um, something that shocks my Aussie colleagues here is the last two presidential elections I voted for in the United States in 2012 and 2008. Uh, my family and I lived in Prince George's County, majority African American county. Both of those elections, I had to wait in line four and a half, five hours to vote. Uh, and for the Aussies in the audience, there were no democracy sausages. You know, in Australia, not only do you go to the polls, but people sell. Wonderful, oh. wonderful, you know, Aussie hot dog. <laughs> so, 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 you know, voting is a good thing here. It's a little bit different experience altogether. Um, look, um, we've got a number of other questions coming in too, but I, I, I wanted to, uh, to build off of something Evelyn mentioned, and she's probably absolutely right. Um, it, it probably wouldn't do Australia well to send a delegation to <laughs> to tell them about the glories of the Australian Electoral Commission. However, um, a, a mutual friend, uh, Jonathan Swan, who's a reporter now for Axios, uh, the United States Study Center did a wonderful 
uh, morning webinar with him just about a month ago. If you haven't watched that, go into the USSC website and check that out. But really kind of shook up the state of the race in the last week uh, with an interview with President Trump that was aired on HBO. Um, and it was widely touted as a master class for how Australian reporters might show American reporters how to do basic reporting. Now, giving credit to, to Chris Wallace, who did something similar uh, from Fox News about a week prior to that or two weeks prior to that. Uh, Simon, I wonder if you might comment on, you know, an Australian reporter's impact on the race and whether or not you know, interviews like that, which were for the international community, for Australia, just sh shocking in terms of what it revealed around the president, whether something like that might have an impact on the race. Um, I go back to our earlier point, Gordon, about the stability in Trump's numbers. Um, and, um, and so, so that leads me to think, you know, not, no, it won't have a, have a big effect in the aggregate. But, you know, if we learned anything from 2016, it's a game of inches. Donald Trump is president because of 77,000 votes spread across three states. And, and so when you realize politics is a game that's played on the margins, um, might, it, might it have some consequence there? And, and the answer is potentially not because a lot of people watch HBO, but because of the life this thing has had secondhand um, in social media, uh, in other news channels picking it up, and uh, MSNBC, uh, uh, an outlet that's not exactly sympathetic to President Trump, they've been making hay out of that Swan interview all week long now uh, since it aired in the United States on the Sunday night, um, just getting hours and hours of, of uh, content out of recycling elements of that interview, as have a lot of other media outlets in the United States, became a huge talking point. And so does it start to, does it start to sort of, I think the sort of audience that would respond to some of the ways that Swan was challenging the president, particularly on the numbers and the chart and saying, well, why can't I look at that? You know, very obvious. I think that's the demographic that's on the move this cycle, college educated whites. I just go, oh my God, um, look, this guy, this, you know, Swan is handing this, giving this guy a masterclass in how to read a chart or what, what, what is a denominator or what should be a, <laughs> my denominator is better than your denominator. I mean, I think there's a sort of, there's, there's an audience that is potentially quite receptive to that, number one. Number two, they are in play this cycle. They have been softened up by, by their dislike of Trump over the last couple of years. And they're plugged into media channels where they may see this thing, if not firsthand, then certainly secondhand. And, 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 and you know, on the margin, Gordon, it's this game of inches. Um, 77,000 votes was enough last cycle. Um, so I, I, think, I, tr I trust I, I, you've seen the interview. If not the interview, yeah, at least yeah, the physical yeah. Jonathan Swan face memes that have come out afterwards. Your view? <laughs> I mean, I think I think what I would add to what Simon said is that, um, first of all, yes, Jonathan has very good access in the White House, so his reporting across the board is always interesting. Um, it might be that that Australian accent we like that here in the states, so maybe it's disarming and gets him into rooms where other people can't get in. But he also asked. He asked really good follow-up questions. He did, oftentimes many reporters let the president off the hook, um, maybe because they're embarrassed by the president's response. Um, they, they let him off the hook out of some kind of element of pity. But Jonathan did, came back and, and, you know, I think just highlighted, again, for the viewer, that, okay, this guy doesn't understand or he doesn't have empathy. And the empathy point, I think, was really well done. 
Um, and I think some of the columnists, I think the Washington Post or New York Times, one of them also wrote a lot about that how he revealed the lack of empathy on the part of this president. And that will be important for women. And in this case, if you already have the women on the left, but you want the women in the middle. And so again, if you wanna get turnout and you wanna get people to vote against Trump who either didn't vote or maybe voted for him, you're gonna get those soccer moms, you're gonna get those women who say, this guy doesn't even care and my grandfather just died. Um, or my kid's grandfather, my father just died, you know? Um, so I think it's middle-aged women and older um, for sure would be likely to watch that and say, you know, this is wrong. You know, for me, there were a lot of striking things in the interview. Uh, um, um, the, the fact that, you know, he would continue to assert that he's done more for African-Americans than anybody except for maybe Abraham Lincoln while talking about John Lewis is quite striking. But the thing that probably came across to me most is prior to the interview, one could have still persisted in the belief that the president's constant repetition of his link between testing and cases with COVID-19 uh, was designed just to be simple political messaging, right? You, you know, modern politics, you get a message like that, you repeat it, you repeat it, you repeat it. But after the Swan interview, it's pretty clear that the president does not understand the linkage between testing and cases, right? Just, you know, and that lack of understanding just came across clear and was quite shocking. I think internationally, that certainly was part of the discussion here in Australia. I would urge our viewers to look this week at an op-ed written by Jennifer Rubin, uh, who traditionally wrote from the right, has become one of the kind of uh, never Trumpers, you know, former Republicans on that side of the, the ledger. Uh, but she, she made some really interesting observations about the American media environment. When I first arrived in Australia seven years ago, number one, I was shocked at the tenor of discussion in question time in parliament. There are few places in the world where Americans will ever be accused of being polite, but our parliamentary discourse is one of them, right? And the second thing that really shocked me was, was you know, Australian reporters are tenacious. I mean, just straight to the point and blunt. Um, and I think we saw that. Jennifer Rubin's op-ed this week in the Post observed that in the American media environment, where it, it really tends to be about building personalities, the people who tend to rise up to the level where they're senior enough to interview the president tend to be those that you want to invite into your home. They're pleasant, they're not confrontational. And as a result, it's been a long time since the president's had that level of direct challenge probing questions. And it was kind of a shock. It was really interesting, really interesting observation. Hey, look, um, uh, I've got a couple of other questions that have come in, uh, both from our, our prior registrants and some online. Um, but uh, one of them is from Peter Dawson, who's a director at a resources or an engineering firm here in Western Australia called Lycopodium. And he asked the questions about whether or not U.S. institutions are strong enough to protect the, the, the U.S. democracy in the, in, the, in the face of this constant assault. Now, I know that's not a new question. It's been going on. But it seems there has been a ramping up of it, particularly focused around this week. Uh, the president's assertion that he wanted to delay the election, which seems to have been beaten back quickly. Maybe, Evelyn, we start with that, that particular question. If you think the U.S. election will be delayed, uh, and how will the institutions hold up? Okay, the election will not be delayed. The Constitution says that the election needs to be held um, in November on a Tuesday, and the uh, first Tuesday in November, it will happen. 
the question about institutions, I, you know, I've been reading Hamilton. I finally got around to, you know, to reading <laughs> and I'm finally reading Hamilton and, um, and, and reflecting on, you know, the choice of George Washington. Um, that was really important. Um, it continues to be important. The, the Chief Justice, I also have, I went to Franklin and Marshall College, um, John Marshall, you know, he shaped the Supreme Court, the, his individual decisions, his personality, his perspective. Um, again, George Washington, same thing with regard to the presidency. And yes, they were early, they were early, so what they did made a big difference, but it's still the case that along the road of history, the people occupying the positions that constitute the institutions are, I think, more important than the institutions themselves and how they comport themselves and whether they respect not just the, the rules, but the culture, um, whether they exercise, you know, what, it, what constitutional scholars call forbearance, you know, where they don't overplay their hand even though there is no law or regulation saying they can't take X or Y action, like gassing American citizens in front of the White House. Um, so I'm referring to what Trump did during the Black Lives Matter demonstrations here in or there in Washington, D.C. So I would say that, um, you know, it, it really is important who the people are. And, and you need to look no further than the role that our Chief Justice, John Roberts, is playing right now on the Supreme Court, understanding very much that we're at a difficult time in our history. It, there's a lot of political tension. And if the Supreme Court makes a decision that's too narrowly overturning precedent, um, that it could actually have a, an effect on what's happening on the streets and in our politics writ large. And he is in the best tradition of Supreme Court justices sort of smoothing the edges and making sure that the Supreme Court doesn't become overly action-oriented, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it, since I'm not a lawyer. Look, uh, there are very few silver linings in the COVID era, but if there's one very slim one, that is that the, the musical Hamilton, as you referred to, is not scheduled to be live in Sydney till next year. Uh, we'll see if that comes <laughs> off or not. But because of, the, of, of, of COVID-19, Disney Plus has released the film version you know, in Australia and globally. Uh, it results a lot of my colleagues and I have watched it in, in, in great detail. And uh, uh, for, if you haven't done it, I, I refer those people to watch the video. I mean, the play is amazing itself. But one of the most moving things for me in the play is, is the final speech of George Washington. You know, a president who, out, out of pure stature, could have held on to power. You know, so that first ever transition of power the song Teach Them How to Say Goodbye is moving in that front. And, and that final farewell speech from George Washington is one I'd commend to all readers who want to, to find solace in history if you can't find it on the newspapers today. Simon, your comments on that transition there. Um, again, very little add to, to Evelyn. Um, Gordon, if you, if you just indulge me for 15 seconds, my own intellectual progression goes from being a heavily institutionalist, um, the sort of political science I learned in my early 20s, getting my PhD, it's all about institutions. Do you have a two-party system? How do you get one? Um, what the parliamentary systems do? What does a more Republican form of government do? Um, bicameral legislatures, compulsory voting, all that sort of stuff. But um, in the fullness of time, um, I've come to appreciate 
I think Evelyn's most excellent insight. That is institutions are only as good as the lived commitments of the people who inhabit them and, and give them day-to-day -day meaning and take actions through them and with them. And, 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 and that is, you know, I, I've come to appreciate that in my role as an educator and as a professor. One of the things we're doing is to instill that sense of purpose and responsibility um, for, for young people then to go on to have lives uh, st with stewardship of, of, these, of these institutions. They're only as good as the people, Gordon. And, um, and there, are, there are, in some when we talk about the strength of institutions, we're talking about the strength of the commitments that individuals have to stick to the rules. And so will, if Trump loses the election, um, can he just stay in the White House and somehow, and I don't think he, he can, because I think there are enough people in the institutions, the courts, the military, the way the government of the United States actually functions that will not countenance that. Um, but it's, it's not because there's something magical about institutions or stone pillars and things on words on documents. Those are important, but it's because people are committed to them as the way they're going to lead their lives and do their work. And, and uh, for the time being, at least, I believe that that remains the case in the United States. Last observation, Gordon, in political science, the most primitive definition we have of democracy is, did you have an election? Did the incumbent lose? And if he did or she did, did they hand over power to the person that won the election? If you've got those three things, you've got a democracy. And, um, and I don't know what the outcome of the election will be, but I remain quite confident, very confident, that if, if it is a decisive result, that the courts don't have to get too overly involved in in November, that there will be a transition of power, um, should that be the, the way events um, take place in November. Well, as anticipated, the hour went far too quickly. Uh, it's amazing that we, we barely touched on, on COVID-19, the economic impact in the United States, the unrest in Portland, uh, a range of other issues which you could have covered. But my hope is that for those, those who are viewing this now live and who will view it in video format later, you will have a deeper understanding of some of the nuances. Again, we're very fortunate to have Evelyn, who's been directly involved in, in, in both in politics uh, and in government and to share her perspectives. Simon, as always, we benefit tremendously from your deep expertise in this issue. I, I wanna wrap up, um, one, with an apologies to those many questions that were on the live chat and in the pre-registered chats that I, I couldn't get to. But secondly, with a final question to, to our, our, our conversation here, and that is, uh, can you just give us, uh, looking ahead at, at trends or events or developments, number one, something that really concerns you, and number two, to hope to end on a little bit of a hopeful note, something that gives you hope. So Evelyn, why don't we start with you, and then we'll go to Simon, and then we'll wrap it up there. Okay, so something that concerns me is impossible because there are so many things that concern <laughs> me, and most of them have to do with the breakdown in the international order, the lack of leadership, the standoff between democracy and autocracy, the fact that as a globe, we can't manage this pandemic, and we are ignoring right now the other crisis out there, which is the climate crisis. Um, so, and not to mention again, the, 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 the political crisis, which is the standoff between democracy and autocracy. So that concerns me. Um, on the counter side though, what gives me hope is the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and globally, basically 
people of all ages, of all races and ethnicities, certainly in, in my home state, in my country, um, standing up and saying, you know what, um, we need to fix this. We need to fix this. And, and I really believe that it's not superficial. It's going to take work and attention to actually implement all of the things that we need to implement to get you know, the racism that's baked in the American cake out of it. It's very hard to deconstruct that cake. Um, but people genuinely, genuinely went and protested in on behalf of their friends and neighbors, and of course, themselves um, in America. And that gave me a lot of hope, a lot of people who were not active. And as I said, pushed the turnout in my election up. Well, you won't be surprised other than to know that among the online chat that's going on right now, we had someone just chime in and say, Evelyn is fabulous. Please get her back to discuss other areas. We realize that you're first and foremost in foreign policy and security yes. specialist. So we were, you know, you've got a fan base growing in Australia. We'll definitely have you back to talk about other issues. Uh, Simon, over to you. I can't improve on what Evelyn said. She, um, I, I'm just going to endorse both, both the, the positive uh, particularly the positive uh, insights, one I've shared with you on previous calls, Gordon, uh, but also I think we are engaged in a titanic struggle, both internationally and domestically, uh, in uh, democracy versus authoritarianism, and in some sense, was it ever thus? <laughs> well, allow me to kind of wrap up by, by offering two things, um, um, and maybe this will be food for our conversation next month as, as Simon in the United States Studies Center hosts us. Um, um, I saw something from Tim Wilson today. Tim Wilson, for those of you who don't know, is one of the leaders behind the, the Lincoln Republicans, uh, or the Lincoln Project, rather, the kind of never Trump Republicans. And he gave a remarkable remark today that says, the, the election ultimately hangs on the health of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. <laughs> and it was, it was actually quite stunning. He said, because, because of the fetishism of the court among, on, on the right side, if, if she were to fall more ill than she already is between now and the election, that would so motivate the base around Trump that would fundamentally shift the race. And that, uh, that certainly got my attention. Uh, the area of hope, and I'll go back to, and I really appreciate Evelyn mentioning, not only the Chertoff book, Hamilton, but the play, because those who put together the play Fair are now. the same community um, are those, uh, as those who, who are behind the Black Lighters movement that really represent kind of the future of the United States. And so the thing that gives me hope is civil society. Uh, and clearly, if you look at the, not just the United States, but the civil society in Australia, civil society in Japan, in Hong Kong, other places, they continue to take great hope for energy from and inspiration from uh, civil society in the United States, uh, going all the way back to the founders in that regard. So um, we are out of time. Evelyn, thank you so much for your time. Simon, I look forward to, to your turn at hosting us in a month from now. And I anticipate that there might be one or two things that happen between now and then that will be worth uh, our conversation in early September. Uh, on behalf of the United States Studies Center and the Perth U.S. Asia Center, we thank you, our audience, for joining us and look forward to next month.